Amen. Thanks, Abby. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. How are we doing? Good, good. It's a joy for us uh, to be uh, together this morning. I want to welcome you uh, here in the sanctuary, over in the chapel, up in the classrooms, online, uh, and also uh, to our friends at Bethany Eastside who are joining us this morning. Uh, we are grieving together the sudden, rather sudden loss of Pastor Travis's uh, father, and so we stand with you as you're supporting the Fletcher family, uh, Pastors Prentice and Brad from Ballard in West Seattle, uh, traveled yesterday to be at the memorial, and so it may not feel like it, uh, but we are a big uh, family uh, here at Bethany. So my name is Eric Henderson. I'm the senior associate pastor uh, here at Green Lake. It's a privilege for me to share in this teaching. We're in the uh, middle of a series uh, in the book of Jonah. A series is really a collection of talks broken up over several weeks. So uh, you've heard from Pastors Abby and Richard so far, and uh, Richard will wrap up the series next week, but it's a joy for me. Uh, to be a part of this uh, teaching uh, today. If you missed a week, I'll encourage you to, to hop online uh, and, and catch up. There's a lot for us to learn in this uh, short but provocative story uh, in the book of Jonah, much for our hearts uh, to be shaped by. So as was just read, we uh, continue, uh, we pick up the story in Jonah chapter three where the scripture says this, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, second time, what happened the first time? Well, if you missed it, let me tell you. Uh, God invited Jonah to go this way to these people, and Jonah went that way with those people. And then he was very much asleep in the bottom of the boat and then very much awake in the belly of a great fish. And then he was spread out like a yard sail on dry land covered in fish sauce. Whatever fish have. But meanwhile... The wicked Assyrians were still wicked, and God, who is rich in mercy, was waiting for both Jonah and the Ninevites to turn to him. And God says, let's try this again. And that's the title of our message today. You can follow along in the bulletin. Let's try this again, because God is a God of second chances. It's true if the Bible had a hall of shame, it would have many of the same names in it as Hebrews 11 does, which is a passage often known as the Hall of Faith. Let's look at these second chance characters with me for a moment. Noah was found drunk by his sons. Abraham trafficked his wife, Sarah. Moses murdered an Egyptian. Rahab committed prostitution. And David hired someone for murder and committed adultery. Then there are those in the New Testament. Zacchaeus, the tax collector who overtaxed people out of personal greed, yet was accepted by Jesus prior to his conversion. And then there was Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Yes, God is a God of second chances. And in Jonah chapter three, we see God inviting Jonah, the Ninevites, and even us to another go at life God's way. So maybe you're here today in need of a second chance or maybe you got one and, and now you need a third or, or maybe God has placed a call on your life that you're not so sure about. Maybe you're here with an ax to grind against an enemy or maybe you're here looking for direction. Maybe you're at the end of your rope and are in need of help or a sense of hope or rest. Maybe you're just here. Regardless, I believe that God wants to meet you and I in this story today. So join me in prayer as we open the scriptures together. 
Lord, we thank you uh, that the Psalms say your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we just confess this morning that uh, we need your light to shine in dark places. And we need your lamp to reveal just a little more of the road ahead of us. So Jesus, we ask that you would uh, move among us this morning for your glory. We love you. Amen. So as we begin together, let's look for a moment at Jonah's second chance. What did it look like and what did he do with it? You can open your Bibles uh, on your phone or in the the pew Bibles there, uh, Jonah chapter three. It says this, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It said, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Now contrasting this with, with God's first words to Jonah in chapter one, he says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now this time, uh, Jonah's a simple man, so God leaves out the part about wickedness and just says, go, and essentially I'll give you the message later. So the word says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, some translations here say that Jonah obeyed, and others simply say that he arose and went. Uh, the, the Hebrew word doesn't uh, indicate obey at all, but simply just that he went. Like his feet moved in the direction that God asked him to. As a parent, sometimes that's like, okay, we can work with that. Uh, it's important to note here that, that if in the belly of the fish, uh, Jonah is realizing the errors of his ways, and in choosing a new direction, that some of that repentance and humility is kind of wearing off uh, by now. But this is the part of the story that that, that many scholars and and commentaries say that Jonah begins to obey God. But if you look closely, I think Jonah goes for a more subtle disobedience. When God calls you to one place, going in the completely opposite direction is not at all subtle. And so Jonah this time uh, says, okay, I'll go, and then proceeds to do a really mediocre job. And maybe you've seen this before. Uh, Maybe you've had some roommates and you confront, there's always one roommate that doesn't do the dishes. So you, you, know, you, you have a confrontation with this roommate and you say, hey, man, it's usually a guy. Uh, you need to do the dishes. Girls tend to make messes in the bathroom, but enough of gender stereotypes. Uh, and so this roommate proceeds to do a really uh, kind of half-hearted job, kind of obnoxiously rubbing some soap. He's got the little scrubber brush. There's not even soap on it. Just kind of getting it wet, tossing the dishes aside while you stand there. Uh, The hope is that next time you'll just go ahead and do it yourself. Uh, Parents, maybe you've experienced this with your children. It's always exciting when your kid reaches a certain age where they can do a uh, a new chore. And so, like, sure, I'll vacuum, Dad. Uh, And then they vacuum up a a rubber band, a a couple pennies, a pen cap, half a bagel. And then literally use, maybe you've done this, I do this, like, use the front of the vacuum to just push whatever survived the carnage the first time under the couch, as if mom's not going to see, not going to see that. Sorry, mom. Uh, My mom's actually here today. Uh, So this is sort of what Jonah does. He walks to the outskirts of Nineveh and he does the bare minimum. Let's look at the text again. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city 
and proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So if Nineveh is Seattle, Jonah starts in like shoreline and he gets to say the, the new Chick-fil-A at 130th and Aurora and he says good enough. He, he doesn't set up in Westlake Center or, or fly a banner over Elliott Bay or, or set up along Green Lake or among the 50,000 Amazon employees in South Lake Union. Hi, guys. Uh, no, he's still on the outskirts of town. He's going to mail it in and sit back and watch nothing happen. Because like the roommate doing the dishes or the kid with the vacuum who wants the one, he, who wants the one asking to just go ahead and do it themselves next time. Now you might be thinking, are we being a little hard on Jonah? He learned his lesson and he went and he gave the message. Yes, and I'd invite us to contrast for a moment Jonah's prophecy, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, uh, with the, the, the prophecy of Nahum, who's another prophet that prophesied against Nineveh. So invite us to listen to this selection of verses, compare and contrast the, the jobs that they did. So this is the prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, just some selected verses. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and the idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare for you a grave, for you are vile. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. But wait, there's more. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the naked, the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth, treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? So yeah, slightly stronger effort from Nahum here, right? Now back to Jonah, who's at the Chick-fil-A. Also, they're closed on Sundays. Uh, so if you're now thinking of chicken, uh, the chicken is repenting at church, so you're gonna have to wait until tomorrow. But Jonah's there. He's still on the outskirts of the city and he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in English, five in Hebrew. Jonah is unique as a prophetic book because this is the only prophecy in it. Five words. No mention of Nineveh's sin, no mention of how to respond, no mention of God. Now, we don't know if there's more that, that God gave him. The narrator of the story chooses words carefully. And all we know is that he says those five Hebrew words, and then this happens, verse five. The Ninevites believed God. 
A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Now Jonah is a divine comedy. It's full of irony and satire and I love it coming out here. Jonah says his five words and then it says the Ninevites believed God. No mention of of Jonah, the Ninevites believed Jonah's message. This is kind of like when your boss gets thanked by the customer from the work, for the work that you did and then just kind of lets it sit. Jonah gives the prophecy on the outskirts of town and expects nothing to happen. And then that message hops the E-line bus down Aurora to the center of the city and the people believe. Jonah does the worst job a prophet has ever done and accomplishes something that no prophet has ever accomplished. Wow. We've talked in other passages in this series about what possible motivations Jonah might have for soft-selling God's message to the Ninevites, but suffice it to say that Jonah is human. He doesn't share in God's concerns for the Ninevites, and as they're the greatest enemy of his people, he wants them to get what's coming. Jonah loves his people, the Israelites, and even when he introduces himself to the sailors in chapter one, as Abby pointed out a few weeks ago, he leads with his national identity. He says, I am a Hebrew, followed by, I worship the Lord. Like if you or I were to say, I am an American, followed by, I worship Jesus. Jonah has enemies, and the question God is asking Jonah is, are you okay with me loving your enemies? Are you okay with me loving your enemies? So we'll lay Jonah aside for a second uh, and we'll look at Nineveh's second chance. Jonah's God is offering Nineveh a second chance and I wonder what did it look like and what did they do with it? So back to the text in verse six. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he, he offered in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their ways and their violence. It says Nineveh believed God. The king, like many others, didn't hear the words from Jonah's mouth. Instead, he heard them kind of through the grapevine. Like a, like a game of telephone where the, the, the message was actually clear on the other end. And then the people, the kings, led by the king, take an immediate posture of repentance. Again, the satire comes out here. It, the, the cows repented. It says livestock repented. They're like, sorry for the lactose. <laughs> Glad you got that. That's good. We'll let that one sit. I'm lactose intolerant, so that's good. It says every person and animal put on sackcloth. Now what is sackcloth? It's a, it's a blanket of, of goat's hair turned inside out to be as uncomfortable as possible. I don't know if any like the hipsters are wearing sackcloth these days, kind of making their own. Uh, the poor goats were wearing blankets made of their own hair. Everyone uh, was in this posture of repentance. Nobody was eating or drinking from the greatest to the least. They turned from evil and violence. Now there's this idea of turning that keeps showing up in this passage and it's significant in a few different ways. 
The Hebrew word Jonah used for overthrown or overturned when he prophesied 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown can have two meanings. This can go either way. It it literally means turned over, but it can be a negative thing like destroyed or overthrown. Or it can be positive as in transformed or changed. Now this word shows up in Genesis 19 in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction. And then it also shows up in 1 Samuel when Saul is transformed into a new man by the spirit of God. So what Jonah meant and hoped for was the first, that Nineveh wouldn't repent and would be destroyed. But what actually happened is that they were overturned, but as a result of believing God and repenting, they were changed. They were transformed rather than destroyed. So we'll continue with this idea of turning. Let's go back to the text, uh, starting in verse eight. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their ways and their violence. Who knows, the king says, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So again, this turning. Nineveh is taking this second chance from God and they're doing well with it. They turn from evil and the king suggests this turning from God. He says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger. Now we are reading uh, translations from the original Hebrew and and being different languages, there's always uh, interpretation happening. What the king says are these three words. He says, shuv, nahem, shuv. Shuv, which means turn or return. Nahem most often means repent and often also means regret. And shuv, turn or return. So turn, repent, turn. Translators often choose relent for Nahem, but the, the, the king doesn't say relent and with compassion, as many of our translations say. The word most often means repent. So why am I dragging us into kind of the weeds of a, of a word study? It's because I think there's a nutrient here in this story that I don't want us to miss. It surely would have been offensive to a Jewish listener to suggest that God needed to repent of anything. And if we're honest, we would feel very much the same way. But the king in this story suggests it, that maybe God would repent in response to their repentance. And indeed he does, in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. I believe the narrator is trying to tell us something about the character and nature of God. I'll just illustrate it this way. One of the things that I miss about my two kids being babies and really the only thing that I miss, if we're being honest, is those moments when they look at you, but particularly when they look at their mother and they smile and mom smiles back and maybe they cry and mom shows concern on their face and it soothes the child, soothes the child and there's this back and forth of kind of nonsense talk. You smile, I smile, you're sad, I'm sad. You babble. I babble. For a mother and child, uh, this is called mirroring. And it's a psychological process that develops the child's sense of self and place in the world. Empathy is born here, resilience is born here. One psychologist puts it this way, repeated tens of thousands of times in the child's life, these small moments of mutual rapport serve to transmit the best part of our humanity, our capacity for love, from one generation to the next. 
And this isn't just a mother-child thing. It, it, it just begins there. We do this all the time. Who of us, when, you know, when, someone, when someone laughs or tells a joke, we laugh if the joke was earned. Uh, or someone comes to tell us something terrible, we don't smile. Like there's some dissonance there if someone's pouring their heart out and we're just kind of big grin on our face. Uh, if you have friends that do that, you may find different friends. Uh, but we share their concern as if to say, you are not alone, I'm with you. And the nutrient in this story is that what transpired here between the Ninevites and God was a beautiful picture of divine mirroring. And it wouldn't be the last time that God asks in this way. Surely the most beautiful example of divine mirroring was the incarnation, where God sent his son Jesus to be like us, to be in human form, to fully understand, be fully human, fully God, fully understand every part of our experience. God responded to the Ninevites' repentance, to their turning from evil by turning from the destruction that Jonah had prophesied. Many translators do use the phrase, maybe your Bible says it, relent and with compassion as the NIV does. And yeah, that happened. Different words, same meaning. Compassion means to suffer with. We call Jesus the suffering servant. Surely he bore our sins. The word says God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we would become the righteousness of God. This is divine mirroring. God relents and doesn't destroy them and joins them in their repentance. God gives Nineveh another chance because that's what God does. And when they take it, he mirrors their posture of repentance and he says, let's try this again. So Jonah had a second chance. He's gonna need a third. Uh, So I encourage you to come back next week and continue the story. Nineveh turned from evil and, and that's what God desired for them. And that leaves us. Where do we find ourselves in this story? I heard a saying this week that I love and I just keep thinking about it. It goes like this. If you want someone to know the truth, tell them. If you want someone to love the truth, tell them a story. If you want someone to know the truth, tell them. If you want someone to love the truth, tell them a story. There is a truth to love in this story, and it's that God is a God of second chances, of do-overs, of new beginnings. Many things around us are in need of, of a new beginning, just some obvious things, our, our public discourse, our, our politics, the way we think about and talk about and relate to those different than us, how we treat those who disagree with us, the way we often treat the poor or the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, those of a different sexual orientation, criminals, children, women, people of color. The list, sadly, can go on and on. We live in a very divided time in history, in our world, in our country, in our city, in our communities, within our families, even within our church, in the very pews that we sit in. And it wasn't actually much different in Jonah's day. One author puts it this way. The story of Jonah was written during a time when Israel was becoming narrower in its self-understanding. The humiliating debacle of exile when they were uprooted from all that was important to their spiritual and social life was over. Now was the time to recover all that had been lost, to close the doors to the corrupting influences of outsiders, 
to renew the exclusive self-identity of the people of God, distinct from all others. Oddly enough, as the religious self-understanding was becoming narrower and narrower, along comes this subversive story of the prophet Jonah, a parable that subtly suggests the mercy of God knows no bounds, including the ones the people of God erect to protect their own identity. There's an old Rich Mullins song called The Love of God, and I was reflecting on the first verse of it this week. It says, there's a wideness in God's mercy that I cannot find in my own. And he keeps his fire burning to melt this heart of stone. Keeps me aching with a yearning, keeps me glad to have been caught in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. We miss the mark when the mercy we offer is narrow and our fury is anger or condemnation. Instead, God's mercy is wide and his fury is that of love. Now there's another truth to love in the story of Jonah, similar to the prodigal son story that Jesus told, and it reveals God's heart for all the nations. And like the older brother in that story and Jonah in this story, we are invited to join God in longing for and celebrating their return. Now the stories that Jesus told, called parables, were meant to reveal the ethics of the kingdom, the economy of God, and they invite us to love the truth as God sees it. I sense the Spirit of God saying to us today, let's try this again. So, what if we took this parable as an invitation to speak God's mercy into every place of hatred, racism, xenophobia, and religious hostility? What if we stopped wishing the worst for our enemies and began praying for them? What if we actually believe that the love of God spoken by the people of God is mighty enough to transform the most vile among us? What if we proclaim the good news and believe that God will do what God will do when we do what is right in God's sight? I'm gonna say that again. What if we took this parable as an invitation to speak God's mercy into every place of hatred, racism, xenophobia, and religious hostility? What if we stopped wishing the worst for our enemies and began praying for them? What if we actually believe that the love of God spoken by the people of God is mighty enough to transform the most vile among us? What if we proclaim the good news and believe that God will do what God will do when we do what is right in God's sight? I'm grateful for the message of Jonah as I studied this week, but because it reminds me that a life of faith in Jesus invites me to a continual pattern of turning. That in my humanity and my brokenness, I keep stumbling from and forgetting God's best for me in the world around me, and God calls me back. He reaches out, he searches me out, and he says, let's try this again. You know, each time I turn, it gets a little easier. Each time I say yes, to God's call, God's voice gets a little louder and a little clearer. All the while, I find I'm becoming more like him. Scripture says, little by little. I begin to love like Jesus. I begin to serve like Jesus. Jonah reminds me that we follow the do-over deity, the God of second and third and fourth chances. That the only thing that's won and done in our faith is Jesus' work on the cross. 
his victory over sin and death. He said it is finished so that you and I could keep at it. Amen? One of the reasons that I like to play golf, as long as we're on the subject, uh, is that you always have another shot. You hit a great shot, uh, another one's coming. Hit a bad shot, another one's coming. I've heard it said that the difference between a good golfer and a bad golfer is how well they recover from their mistakes. God reminds me, uh, golf reminds me of, of constant new beginnings and that God loves my process. He's glad to be with me. I was playing golf with a, with a friend and his son a while back and all day long, the son was about 11 or 12 years old and all day long, the son's like trying really hard to beat dad. Like he really kind of wants it. And at some point late in the round, I can't remember if it was just on a particular hole or if he had kind of bested his score for the round, the, the son uh, was, was beating his dad. And so he was kind of bragging like we would naturally do. Like, oh, dad, you know, I got you, ha <laughs> ha, you know. And uh, his dad like a, first looked like a little bit mad and then kind of turned and got a grin on his face. And he was like, buddy, I don't, I don't think you get it. Like, that's why we're here. That's why, that's why we do this. Like, I want you to be better than me. I want you to surpass me. That's the goal. I love that. And it's so clear to me that, that God is on a mission in the world to turn hearts toward himself. And Jesus said to his disciples that you will do greater things than me. And I don't fully know what that means, but it for sure means that God delights when we join him in his mission. Jesus wants to capture the hearts of every person, starting with my heart and your heart. And maybe your new beginning today is simply to recommit your way to Jesus, to turn, to go back to the basics. I know sometimes we're looking for the shortcut. Uh, sometimes we're looking for that new, that new program, that new game-changing insight, that new revelation. And there's often times where I'm sitting there and like Richard is giving it to us and we go, oh, this changes everything. Um, we often think that it, it, it couldn't be as simple as spending a few minutes each day in prayer and, and meditating on a few verses. It couldn't be as simple as just showing up Sunday after Sunday, eager to connect with God's people and to sing our hearts out and thanks for who God is. It couldn't be as simple as joining a small group and showing up week after week, year after year. It, it couldn't be as simple as, as beginning to, to be generous with, with my finances. It couldn't be as simple as just using a gift that I have and showing up regularly to serve and bless those around me. But what if it is that simple? It may feel like today that, that the world is, is too far gone or, that, or, or this person or that person in your life is, is, is too far gone or even your own heart has strayed too far. But God's saying today, let's try it again. I hear God calling us back to the basics. I heard a great story uh, recently. There is a journalist who, uh, who was following Kobe Bryant and they were doing an event together uh, during Kobe Bryant's prime. He's now retired, but in his prime, the best basketball player in the world. And so he says to Kobe, hey, can I come and watch you train? And so Kobe says, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be there at four. 
And so the guy says, oh, our event's at 3.30. How's that gonna work? And he says, no, 4 a.m. And so this guy's like, okay, got more than what I bargained for. So he gets up, gets his coffee. And he says that for 45 minutes, he watched the greatest basketball player in the world do the most basic and rudimentary drills. He worked on footwork. He worked on passing. He worked on really simple shots, layups. And at the end of the training time, he, he wanted to say, like, I was a little disappointed. Like, I thought I'd see some magic. And Kobe, uh, and, and, and so, so Kobe told him, he said, uh, just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. He says, I'm the greatest basketball player in the world because, I love that he just acknowledges it. Uh, he said, I wake up every morning to do what others are unwilling to do so that come game time, I can do what others are unable to do. I wake up every morning to do what others are unwilling to do so that come game time, I can do what others are unable to do. You know, Kobe's retired now and I read recently that he still wakes up at 4 a.m. to train. Uh, and that's instructive for us as followers of Jesus. There's a danger that, that I think uh, we run up here teaching is that uh, we make this stuff sound really simple. The Christian life is hard. And so it's not just flipping a light switch. God is inviting us to put in the reps. Just because it's simple doesn't mean uh, that it's easy. I don't know what your new beginning is today, but Jesus went to great lengths so that we could, with great faith, say his mercies are new day by day. And then let that confidence lead us to a continual posture of repentance and turning. He says, let's try this again. Let's try this again. So we're gonna spend some time responding uh, to these words now responding to the Lord in worship. There'll be members of the prayer team that are up here. Uh, but let's not leave without taking a moment to consider what new beginning God might be calling us to. Let's pray together. God, we thank you uh, that your word doesn't return void. That when you say something happens, it happens. And God, we ask uh, that you would give us the faith in, in, in each of our contexts uh, to follow you. So God, as you're speaking to us now in these moments, I pray that you would uh, help us to, to, to fully be aware just in this moment of the great lengths that you went to to show your great love for us. Would we feel that great love uh, even now in these moments? God, we ask uh, that we would give you glory for who you are and what you've done. God, we give you honor. You are worthy of our worship. And so we respond to you now, Lord. We love you. In your name, amen. Let's worship together.